on a chair in the back uh, if you would like one. <clears throat> so covenant theology, it's, it's a very large topic. Uh, not going to get through everything that we need to talk about in 60 minutes, um, but we'll do what we can. I'm just going to walk you through the outline here so you kind of have an idea of what we'll be talking about. First, we'll define a covenant. What is a covenant? Talk about covenant theology. Talk about some reasons for studying covenant theology. Uh, basic principles or theses of Reformed covenant theology as opposed to other uh, ideas of covenant theology. The uh, one or two meta-covenants in Reformed theology, there's, there's a little bit of a, a difference in thinking and talking about uh, the covenant of grace, so we'll talk about that a little bit. And then the experiential dimension of covenant theology, how does covenant theology impact our lives? The last page is um, a list of resources that I used for this lesson. Um, it's been a long time since I've had to cite sources and make a bibliography, so it's poorly done. I apologize for that. It, it cited the, uh, the website where you can buy the book. So that was a mistake, but it also gives you uh, a resource if you would like to buy any of these. A lot of this is based on stuff from here, Reform, Covenant the uh, Reform Systematic Theology, Volume 2, by uh, Dr. Beakey and Paul Smalley. I believe uh, all three volumes are in the library if you want to look at it, or you can borrow, borrow mine if you want. Um, they're definitely very uh, well worth the price and the labor uh, it takes to read them. They're, they're very long books, but they're very good. Um, okay, so we'll start off with what is a covenant. So somebody want to give me a quick one-sentence definition of what a covenant is? Okay, good. Yeah, that's a great definition. So um, a legal binding agreement between two, uh, two parties, and there are responsibilities on each side, rewards for um, good service, punishments for bad service. So uh, I have here the definition from this book. It says, a covenant may, de may be defined as a solemn promise that functions as a legal instrument to define a relationship of loyalty. So what are some examples of covenants in our daily life here in modern America? Marriage, good. How is marriage a covenant? Yeah. Promises to each other. There's obligations on both sides. Um, good. What else? Okay, yeah, business contract. Um, I agree to sell you this thing for this price. If you don't deliver, then there's penalties. Uh, loans are, con are, uh, are covenants, right? You're agreeing to pay it back on time. The Constitution, a covenant between whom? Who are the two parties in the Constitution? Government and the people, okay. Good, I didn't think about that, but that's good. Okay, so, um, so we, we have kind of an idea of, of what a covenant is, uh, how covenants function in our modern life, when we think about the biblical covenants specifically, who are the two parties? Okay, Christ and the church. Good. Maybe a little bit more general than that. God, yeah, God and man. God and his people. Good. So uh, what is the relationship between them? So if, if a covenant defines a relationship, we think about covenants in the ancient you know, Near East. There was a king and a vassal. One was... And authority over the other. What is the relationship between God and man in the biblical covenants? Who's the authority? God. God. And who is the, the vassal? Yeah. Right, the other one. Yeah, man. So, <clears throat> What's that word again? Vassal. vassal. Yeah, like the, uh, the lesser of the two parties the one under authority, okay? Good. Uh, and, and what are the responsibilities of each party? So we, we talked about in a covenant, one, uh, one party, both parties have responsibilities. What, what are the responsibilities? God has made promises, and we are required to be obedient to his commands. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so God promises us things. Um, what, what are some, some promises that God has made in some of his covenants? Okay, yeah. Daily, daily needs, sustenance, um, providence, um, salvation, right? Salvation is a promise of God. Guidance. Guidance, yeah, absolutely. And, and what are some of the responsibilities? Uh, Paul said obedience. What, what are some other ones that man has to God? Love, good. Faithfulness, loyalty, <clears throat> worship, right? We're, we are obligated to worship God. There's another definition here from uh, Christ of the Covenants, uh, O. Palmer Robertson's good book. He said, A covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. When God enters into a covenantal relationship with men, he sovereignly institutes a life and death bond. A covenant is a bond of blood or a bond of life and death sovereignly administered. Okay, so uh, here he brings in the the idea of blood as being an an essential part of uh, biblical covenants. So what are some examples of covenants in the Bible? Okay, yeah, the, the Noahic covenant, right? God promises not to destroy the earth again. Um, yeah, the Abrahamic covenant. What was, um, give me a little bit of background on the Abrahamic covenant. God promises to Abraham to fight his enemies. Right, Genesis 15. Um, is it 15? I think it's 15. Um, right, God splits the animals, puts Abraham to sleep, walks through. Um, Signifying that God will keep his promise, even if man does not. Right? What else? Some other, other covenants. Covenant of works with Adam. Yeah, covenant of works with Adam. Uh, obey and live, disobey and die. Right? That's, that's a covenant. Good. And we'll, we'll talk about some more covenants as we, as we go through. <clears throat> so when we, when we talk about covenant theology, that's sort of... Um, a, a basic principle of Reformed uh, theology is covenant theology. Uh, so what is covenant theology as opposed to systematic theology, biblical theology, that sort of thing? So this is a quote from a, a guy named Woolsey uh, from his book, Unity and Continuity in Covenantal Thought. He says, covenant theology is a divinely ordained means of portraying the nature of God's relationship with man, particularly the organic unity and progressiveness of God's saving purpose for his people throughout the history of mankind. What do you think he means when he says that covenant theology is a divinely ordained means of portraying the nature of God's relationship with man? What are some of the implications of that statement? It's not a covenant that was negotiated. It was determined by God and God alone. Good, yeah. Um, It was determined, yeah, divinely ordained, right? It wasn't... God, you know, made terms, and we, Abraham or Adam or whoever sort of said, you know, walked them back a little bit, and, and they didn't come to an agreement like that. God laid out the terms of the covenant, and uh, man submitted to it. But what about, so he's talking about covenant theology, not, not just specifically covenants, but covenant theology as a divinely ordained means. What do you think he's saying about covenant theology uh, as opposed to dispensationalism or uh, some other sort of uh, way of understanding revelation and periods in Scripture? If, if covenant theology is divinely ordained, does that mean it's right? Okay, right. So he, he's making a, a statement that, that covenant theology is the faithful interpretation of the Bible. So that that statement has, um, you know, pretty big implications, right? It's not one way of reading the Bible or one way of understanding God's relationship with man. It is the divinely ordained means of understanding God's relationship with man. You guys have probably heard about the, the analogy of Scripture. You can interpret Scripture with other Scripture. There's another principle called the analogy of faith, whereby uh, it's not just the the specific words of Scripture that are ordained, 
by God, but the meanings of Scripture are ordained by God. And so we can apply that to here, saying that uh, covenant theology, when we affirm that covenant theology is the divinely ordained, faithful means of portraying the nature of God's relationship with man, that that is the right way, as opposed to other ways. Okay? So it's pretty important. This, is, uh, this next quote is from Dr. Beakey. He was reviewing a book uh, about covenants. He says, It has been said that Reformed theology is covenant theology, for covenant is not merely a doctrine or theme in the Bible, but is the principle that structures all of Revelation. What about this statement? What does this show you about the importance of covenant theology? Good. Foundational is a, that's a really good way of putting it. We're in foundations class. That's why we're studying it here, right? Because this is uh, something that structures how we read the Bible, how we interpret the Bible, how uh, our pastors exegete the Bible, um, and how we apply it to our lives. Okay, so the third point, why study covenant theology? Um, that's an important part of this church. It's an important part of our Reformed and Presbyterian heritage, um, but why should we, as individuals, study covenant theology? This comes, uh, these, I think there's six uh, statements come from this this book. So I'm going to read one, and then you guys, or we together, will explain what they mean. So the first reason for studying covenant theology is because the covenant stands in the closest relation to Christ. What do you think that means? How, or how, I guess we'll say, how does the covenant stand in the closest relation to Christ? The covenant is directly between God and man. Okay, yeah. Um, this is question 36 from the Westminster Larger Catechism. The question is, who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? The answer is, the only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father, in the fullness of time became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two entire distinct natures in one person forever. So if Christ is the only mediator between God and man, right? Uh, there's only one, one name by which under heaven by which men can be saved, the man, Christ Jesus, Christ is the only mediator, then if we understand the relationship between God and ourselves, that puts us in a very close relationship with Christ, because he is the mediator of that covenant. What does it mean to be a, a mediator? Maybe we should define that. Middleman, right? Maybe you've heard the, the Latin phrase, via media, like the middle way. You've got two opposing views. The via media is the two groups coming together, finding a middle way. So a mediator is someone who stands in the middle. If the two parties in the covenant are God and man, someone has to stand between us. And, and why, does, why do we need a mediator? Because God is holy, just, and righteous, and we're not. Yeah. God is holy, just, and righteous, cannot abide sin. We are sinful, so we need someone to stand between us. The, we, I don't think we have enough time to get into this a whole lot, but the, the catechism's answer also brings in Christ's two natures. Why is, that in, what, why is Christ's two natures of God, fully God and fully man, why is that important for him as our mediator? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a good quote. I'm probably going to um, botch it because I'm trying to think of it off the top of my head. Um, it said, only God, let me see, okay, only man has to fulfill the covenant, but only God could. So uh, for us to be reconciled to God, we had to have a person fulfill the covenant of works, right, and uh, live a perfect life, die, 
So that's why God, that's why Christ has to be man. But only God could fulfill the covenant of works because all man, all mankind is sinful. So that's why Christ has to be both God and man. Okay? So the covenant stands in the closest relation to Christ. If we understand covenant theology, we will learn to love and uh, be more grateful uh, to Christ as we learn more about the nature of the covenant and his, his nature as our mediator. The second point is that the covenant structures redemptive history. What is redemptive history? What is history? We'll break it down. Okay, something that happens in the past. What is redemption? Are you talking about Christ dying and raising again? Yeah, that's that's certainly part of redemptive history. Yeah. Man's it's the man's fall and then being brought back in relationship with God. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we think about redemptive history, it's it's the history of the world, right? Because uh, you, you can break history up into creation, fall, redemption, glorification, right? So we were created, Adam and Eve were created perfect, they fell into sin. Because of that fall into sin, they needed a mediator, they needed a covenant. So when we think about history, particularly redemptive history as outlined in the Bible, we can see how the covenant is the structure. That's kind of what what Woolsey was saying here. Covenant theology shows the organic unity and progressiveness of God's saving purpose. What does it mean to be unified together, right? So when we think about covenant theology, it's not a bunch of different separate covenants that have nothing to do with each other. It's, uh, and and we'll talk about it in the next section, but it's uh, different administrations of the same covenant. So there's a unity. God. Uh, God has one purpose. He doesn't have a bunch of different purposes. He doesn't say, we'll try this. Oh, that didn't work. We'll try this. That didn't work. We'll try this, right? It's one purpose. It it might be administered differently. For instance, uh, in the Old Testament, they had different sacraments than we have in the the New Testament church. Uh, They're administered differently, but they they, uh, signify the same thing, okay? So when we understand... When we understand covenant theology, we understand the way that God has structured history um, in, in different administrations of his covenant. The third point is that the covenant supports God-centered faith. Um, how does the covenant, our understanding of the covenant, support God-centered faith? Faith. Right, right. Uh, kind of like what Kathy said. God ordained the covenant. God set the terms of the covenant. It was not. It's not man-centered. It's centered around God. We, we, our duty as creatures is to uh, submit ourselves to the covenant. But if we understand that the covenant was ordained by God and instituted by God, then that pushes our uh, our eyes heavenward. Right? We're not. We we don't have to rely on ourselves. We need to rely on God, who is our faithful covenant God. Okay. Yes. Good. So um, maybe we'll uh, skip ahead to page two and three. That's probably a good, uh, a good point. So when we talk about the covenant, I'm talking about the covenant of grace. Um, and there are, there are two different ways that Reformed theologians have understood the covenant of grace. This is point five at the bottom of page two through Page three, there's uh, the one covenant model, which is the idea that 
uh, the parties in the covenant of grace, the, the, the covenant that God made to redeem man from sin. The parties are God the Father, representing the Trinity, and God the Son, representing the elect. Um, so that's a, a unified covenant of grace. Another way of understanding it is the two-covenant model. Um, this is a quote from Gerhardus Voss. He says, the most common conception was that there are two covenants, a covenant of redemption among God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and based on that, a covenant of grace between the triune God and the elect sinner, believers with their seed. So when I say the covenant, I mean the covenant of grace. There are other covenants. We talked about the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Um, the covenant of grace is the overarching covenant that structures all those other different administrations of the covenant of grace. And there's also the covenant of works, um, which we, we talked about already, That's to Adam do this and live, do this other thing and die. Um, but when we talk about the covenant, I'm, I'm meaning the covenant of grace, how God covenanted with himself and the Trinity to save his people. And um, there's, again, there's different ways of, of understanding that. Um, there's not a real difference in, in theology. We'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more when we get there, but does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. So the covenant, the covenant of grace, supports God-centered faith because um, the covenant of grace, the covenant of redemption was established before time began. We certainly weren't a part of that. God didn't consult us when he um, made the covenant with himself, uh, the, the, the three persons of the Trinity. So it's, it's God-centered. Okay, the fourth point is that the covenant shapes spiritual experience. How do you think Understanding the covenant of grace shapes spiritual experience. Talked about earlier, the, the covenant, uh, God in the covenant makes promises to man. So salvation, uh, his sustaining power, providence, guidance. How does our understanding that that is God's relationship to us, how does that guide our spiritual experience? How does that kind of explain that a little bit? Um, on our part of our part of uh, the covenant, it's it's impossible without Christ. So, like we, we before we come to worship, uh, we confess our sins, and it's I don't know. I mean, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, Knowing that, that Christ is our mediator and our only mediator, uh, we're more reliant on him through his spirit um, because we can't fulfill the covenant on our own. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Also think about um, providence, right? Uh, God is a providential God. Everything that happens to us has been ordained by God. When we understand that God, the Father, who is providential and who has ordained everything that will happen to us, when we understand that he is our loving father who is in covenant with us, Hebrews 6 talks about um, that the covenant is a promise that is unbreakable, right? When we understand that, we're able to interpret what happens to us. You know, if it's good providence or hard providence, I think that's what uh, Ben Heyman said yet, uh, last week, there's good providence, providence that seems good to us. There's providence that seems hard to us. But when we understand that God is our loving covenant God and Father, that shapes how we in interpret that. Does that make sense? <clears throat> the fifth point is that the, co the covenant directs the church's practice. How does understanding the covenant of grace direct our practice as the church? We, you, you can answer that, church you know, kind of universal, or this particular church, or the church in general. Who is, uh, who is the head of the church? 
Christ, right? Christ is the head of the church universal. He's the head of this church in particular. Uh, Pastor Mock and the elders were not the heads of the church. We have one head, Christ, who is our mediator in the covenant. How does that understanding help shape our, our practices in the church? Sort of our, our order of worship, the kind of songs we sing, the way that um, the pastors preach, the sacraments, the way we administer the sacraments, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So our, our worship is God-centered because it is God-ordained, right? Um, when we think about uh, the regulative principle of worship, that's the idea that we, we worship God only in the way that he has expressly commanded us to worship. If we understand our relationship to, to the Father as a covenant relationship, God is an authority and we are under his authority, and so we're not able to worship in any way that we want to, right? Uh, that's part of our responsibility as members of the covenant is to worship God in the way that he has directed. And that's why, we, that's why we worship the way we do. That's why we administer the sacraments the way we do. That's why we teach the way we do, why we discipline the way we do, because it is how God has told us to do it. The last point is that the covenant glorifies God in his attributes. How do you think understanding the covenant of grace glorifies God in his attributes? It reflects his character. Okay. Give me an example. Yeah. Again, you're right. But you got the easy part over it. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God is just, um, and, and, and we can see, how is God's justice reflected in the covenant? Through Christ's atoning sacrifice. Yeah, Christ's atoning sacrifice. If, if God was uh, not just, then Christ wouldn't have needed to die, right? We wouldn't have needed uh, a vicarious sacrifice, uh, an atoning sacrifice on our behalf, but he is just. That's why God had to covenant with himself uh, among the, the three persons of the Trinity <clears throat> to save us. That's why Christ has to be the mediator. It seems like you also have to talk about his law somewhere in there. Yeah. I don't know where. But... Yeah, how does, how does God's law um, contribute to the, the covenant? Our practice. Yeah, our practice, and then uh, show through us our, our failure and need for Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we'll talk about the three uses of the law a little bit later. Um, but the the law, God's moral law, is binding on us. It it shows us our sin, and it also um, is still. We we also still need to obey the law, even as um, believers in the New Testament era. What are some other um, attributes of God that are highlighted in the covenant of grace that, that we can understand better when we understand the covenant, the covenant theology? Mercy? Good. How? Yeah. Yeah. Did God, uh, in his nature, have to provide a sacrifice for us? No, right? God is. God would have been fully um, justified in leaving us in our state of sin and misery. But because he is merciful, because he loves us, um, he provided the mediator and brought us into covenant with himself. That's part of God's condescension to us as, as humans, as sinners. He could have left us in our state of sin and misery, but he provided the mediator and brought us into a loving relationship with himself.
when we when we know more about the covenant of grace, the, the covenant of grace is kind of maybe think of it as like a mirror, right? We we see God reflected in the covenant because um, because God is who He is and the way that He is. Uh, he structured the covenant the way He did. And so when we learn more about the covenant, we're learning more about who God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, and uh, we can worship Him and glorify Him more. Uh, more as we should. All right, so we're moving on to number four here, basic principles of Reformed covenant theology. Again, this is, these points are taken from Reformed systematic theology. Um, there's a chapter on each one of these. So again, if you are interested in this kind of stuff, this is a good book to, to grab uh, from the library. You can borrow mine. You can't have it, but... Um, Okay, so, so one of the basic principles of Reformed Covenant theology is the perpetual continuity of God's gospel. So I have the question, why is continuity important in the gospel? But before we do that, before we answer that question, what is continuity in God's gospel? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Um, what does is, what is continuity mean? Yeah. Right, because... Good. Oh, it's the same God as what he said. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. When we think about, um, I don't know if you've heard this, some people say like the God of the Old Testament as opposed to the God of the New Testament. When we understand covenant theology, we can see how that is a false view of God. God has not changed. God does not change and never will change. If he did, then he wouldn't be God, right? So it's the same God throughout the whole Bible, and uh, it's the same plan, right? The gospel is the same now as it was in all of history. How do we understand um, the gospel before Christ as opposed to the gospel after Christ? Yeah, right. Um, Paul talks about it in in Romans 4. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Was Abraham saved by works, or was he saved by faith? Faith, right? We talk about faith in the Old Testament. It's faith in the promise of something to come. Faith in the New Testament is faith in something that has already come. But it's the same faith. It's the same gospel. The Old Testament saints were not saved by adherence to the law, adherence to sacrificial system, because if you read the Old Testament, oftentimes they didn't do a very good job of it, right? They had to be saved by works, then none of them would have been saved. But we know, you know, think about Hebrews 11, there's this long list of Old Testament saints who were saved, and they were saved by faith, faith in what was to come. So the perpetual continuity of God's gospel, that means that it's the same gospel, it's the same God saving through the same gospel throughout all of history. Why is that important? To affirm that God's gospel is continuous and unified, not broken up.
Yeah. Yeah. And like we said, the Old Testament sacrifices, the, the killing of the animals to cover Adam and Eve, all these bloody sacrifices were pointing ahead to the ultimate sacrifice, the prototypical sacrifice of uh, Christ, the God-man. And that, that's one reason why our, our sacraments now are, are not bloody, because the blood has been shed already. We don't need to shed more blood. You Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, and that's another another example of the covenant um, being or or uh, giving God-centered faith because salvation is from the Lord, not not from man, not from man's uh, fidelity to the covenant. The next principle is the covenant of works. So we, we kind of talked about this briefly. The covenant of works was instituted in the Garden of Eden, right? Uh, Adam, do this and live. Don't do this and die. Um, did Adam fulfill the covenant of works? No. Um, and and again, it's important. We, I think sometimes we think about the covenant of works. Uh, Adam fails, and now God has to think of something. Is that a correct understanding? Does God have to go to plan B? Right? No, this... Before the foundation of the world, God, the, the Trinity, covenanted within himself to save humanity, because he is all-knowing, right? Um, but uh, Paul, in, in Galatians, talks about the, the difference between the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. <clears throat> so my question here is, how is the opposition between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace presented in the Bible? about Galatians 4 here. Verse 21 says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Why is he saying that, that these believers, these New Testament believers, desire to be under the law? Yeah, we want to do things for ourselves, we don't want to be um, given a gift. We want to earn it. Um, so, by nature, we try to earn our righteousness, to, to earn our salvation uh, through our righteousness, and uh, that doesn't work. So, why is it significant for us as New Testament believers uh, to think about the, the the opposition between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace? Question makes sense. What, what, is, what is the opposition? Um, I mean, that might be a question, but no. Um, so, so Paul, Paul in, in Galatians four, he's talking about t- talking to the Galatians. He's saying you are under the covenant of grace, but you're trying to live under the covenant of works. And so there's there's an opposition there. Uh, there there's a, a difference between what they are actually. They are actually under the covenant of grace, but they're trying to. Earn their salvation through the covenant of works. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If we, even though we are in fact under the covenant of grace, try to live under the covenant of works, it's not going to work. Right. It's significant because again, this is God-centered faith. We have to, uh, we, and don't. Misunderstand me, I'm not saying that we don't have to try to fulfill the law because it is still binding on us, but we cannot try to earn our salvation by obeying the law. Um, So we have to understand and admit our uh, our sin and our sinful tendency to try to do things on our own and rest and trust in Christ and through his salvation and the, the work of his Holy Spirit being able to fulfill the law for his glory. Could we aptly summarize the antithesis of the opposition? Um, and you alluded to it, but it's in there. 
Yes. Yes, thank you. Yeah, so, yeah, good, good point. Um, it's, a, it's not just a difference in perspective, but a difference in starting point, right? Do you start with the law and earn your life, or do you receive your life and are enabled to fulfill the law? Yeah, yeah, there's a, it reminds me of a, a Shia Lin lyric to Christian rapper. He said, we, we have been saved by works, Christ. Right? Um, okay, the third principle is the covenant with God's Son and those in union with him. I already read uh, the larger catechism 36. <clears throat> Who's the mediator of the covenant of grace? The only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it talks about his, his substitutionary atonement and his uh, two natures. Why is union with Christ, the, the language of union with Christ, used so frequently in the New Testament? Yeah, yeah, because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. <clears throat> when you, uh, this, I heard Sinclair Ferguson say this once, um, you know, the question of how are Christians referred to in the New Testament? And it's, it's very rarely as Christians. It's, it's much more often as those in union with Christ, in Christ, with Christ. Um, because Christ is the only mediator, the, the, the only way that we can uh, be members of the covenant uh, in relationship with the Father is by being united with Christ. Um, and, and I have this, this next question, significant for the continuity of the covenant of grace, covenant of redemption. It, it was the same in the Old Testament as in the New. Old Testament believers were united to Christ as well, just as we are, um, just in a, a different administration. And that brings us to the next point, the diverse administrations of God's covenant of grace. Uh, this is a quote from uh, a study Bible, the Reformation Heritage Study Bible. It says, the other covenants, meaning like the Noahic covenant, the uh, Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, the other covenants are applications of the covenant of grace to particular people or to their special needs or circumstances. Some continue to bind God and man, but others have been fulfilled in Christ and are no longer binding. We kind of talked about this, right? If there is one unified covenant, covenant of grace or the covenant of redemption, other covenants in the Bible are different administrations of that covenant, but they are not different covenants. Um, dispensationalism is sort of the idea that, that breaks up the redemptive history into very distinct and separate uh, dispensations, different covenants. And, and so there's, there's very little to no continuity in the Bible if you subscribe to that view thinking about the covenant of grace as being the sort of all-encompassing covenant, we can see that these other administrations of God's covenant of grace are still part of the covenant of grace. It looks different, just like our sacraments and our worship look different than Old Testament sacraments and Old Testament worship, but it's the same. Um, sorry, I'm kind of breezing through these. If you have a question or something to add, please, please say it, but uh, we have 15 minutes left, so... The next point is the essential unity of God's covenant of grace. We have um, talked about this already. Uh, the question, given, given the diverse administrations of the covenant of grace referred to in the last question, why is it, why is it important that there is an essential core of unity? And, and we've talked about that, right? Um, we know that God, um, the, the, the essential core of unity is God and his nature and his covenant uh, among the three persons of the Trinity and that gives us, that should give us hope that God knows what he's doing and he's, uh, everything is um, God fulfilling that one covenant. We don't have to wonder which, you know, am I, which dispensation we're under. We know we're under the covenant of grace. The fifth point is, uh, or the sixth point, excuse me, 
is the abiding duty to obey God's moral law. Uh, Pastor Mock alluded to this, the third use of the law. Uh, does anybody want to take a crack at a definition of the third use of the law? Right, so there's, there are three uses of the law. The first is to um, uh, limit wickedness, right? Uh, the second, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of these, the second is uh, to, to show sin. Uh, and the third is as a um, still binding uh, duty for believers to, to obey. We, we still have to obey the law. There's... Uh, a, a, Sort of a, a thought called antinomianism, which uh, says that the law no longer applies to us because we are believers, um, and we would reject that view and say that we are not saved by the law, but we are saved in order to obey the law, kind of what, what Pastor Mark was alluding to earlier. Um, this coincides with the unity of the covenant of grace because God's law, um, if it was perfect and holy when it was instituted, uh, it cannot be imperfect and not holy now, right? It's got, God is the same throughout all history, uh, throughout all time, and even beyond time. And so his law is still binding on us. We still are called to obey it. And when we disobey it, there are still you know, repercussions. The last point is the church's union with her covenant God through faith. Uh, I, I won't read this whole quote, but uh, it talks about Covenant theology being experiential theology. It's not just um, a cool thing to learn, although it is that. It's not just a way of thinking about the Bible, although it is that. But it is uh, and should be, uh, should have an effect on how we live our lives. I'm going to skip that question because I I ask it again later, and we'll just ask it there. Um, We already kind of talked about the difference between the the one covenant model that sees the covenant of grace as a, a unified um, covenant between the Father representing the Trinity and the Son representing the people. Uh, Voss references the larger catechism, question 31. Uh, with whom was the covenant of grace made? The answer is the covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed. The two covenant model sees uh, sort of breaks that up into two. Uh, the covenant of redemption, which is uh, the inter- inter-Trinitarian covenant uh, and the covenant of grace, which is uh, where Christ uh, represents the elect uh, in covenant with the Father. I'm going to read this quote here under C. Uh, Voss is quoting Hodge um, about the differences between the two models. He says, This is a matter which concerns only perspicuity or clarity of statement. There is no doctrinal difference between those who prefer the one statement and those who prefer the other between those who comprise all the facts of Scripture relating to the subject under one covenant between God and Christ as a representative of his people, and those who distribute them under two. So it's not um, one of those uh, really significant things that you know, would, would cause us to, to maybe break fellowship with someone who, who holds to the other view, um, but it is maybe a, a difference of perspective, or like Hodge says, a clarity of statement. I want to talk... Uh, spend the rest of our time talking about this last point, um, the experiential dimension of covenant theology. When we talk about experiential theology, what are we talking about? It's not just how we experience things, like through our senses. There's another, another dimension to it. Are you talking about your heart? Heart? Yeah. Yeah, it... Um, it, but, but it also has a, a practical aspect as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, we interpret our experiences. There's also a, a practical dimension. So, the, good theology should 
make a difference in your life, change how you experience your life, change how you act. So when, when I talk about the experiential, experiential dimension of covenant theology, I'm talking about uh, basically what I say here. Based on all that we have said about covenant theology, what practical difference do you think it does make in your life? The reality that God is a covenant God, the covenant is uh, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, based on all that stuff we've talked about, how does that impact your life? Okay, love is law. Good. Uh, Psalm 119, right? And Psalm 19. Um, we love the word, we love the law. What else? Yeah, exactly. Um, it gives us comfort. It gives us hope. God is um, all-knowing and all-wise and all-holy. And so uh, nothing that happens to us is a surprise to God. And um, I think that, that should be a comfort for us. The second question, what practical difference should it make in your life? These are you know, similar questions. Um, but but there, there's a distinction between what we know we should do and what we actually do. So um, what practical difference should the knowledge of God's covenant make in our life? So we, we interpret our experiences according to, to God and his word. We should love the law of God. What else? Yeah, you think about Christ as the mediator of the covenant. He's the surety of the covenant. If, if the Father allowed his only begotten Son to die to save us, how much more will he keep us in covenant with himself? Uh, we, you know, there's that, that line, I, I don't remember who said it, but you know, if we could lose our salvation, we would. But thankfully, it's not up to us. Because God is faithful, even when we are not. It also makes me think of 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. Paul's talking about, about worship, but he says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. I think that applies to the covenant as well. God is not uh, a God of confusion. He's a God of order, a God of peace. Um, and so when we understand covenant theology, we can see the order and peace with which God has made the world and sustains the world. And I think that gives us great comfort um, in, our, in our daily lives and in how we interpret things that happen, not just to ourselves, but, but in history, large, you know, um, nothing surprises God, right? And this last part, how, how can our study of covenant theology guide you in your personal devotions, family worship, and corporate worship here at Cross Creek? So think about those three areas. You personally with God, you with your family, and you with uh, your spiritual family here in corporate worship. And then, of course, I had to ask about the sacraments. Right. 
think about how we, uh, how we administer the Lord's Supper here. Uh, each individual member takes individually, but we take at the same time. And I think that's a picture of Christ, uh, God, the Father through Christ and the Spirit saves each person individually, but also saves us corporately. So uh, God, our relationship to God in covenant is for us personally, and that should affect how we uh, worship God and study the Word of God individually, how we study the Word of God and worship as a family, because it, it is for believers and their children, and how we worship and study corporately. What about uh, covenant theology, the sacraments? I taught on the sacraments two weeks ago. Um, we talked about the, and I, I mentioned it here as well, but the, the New Testament sacraments are different in form than the Old Testament sacraments, right? Uh, Old Testament sacraments being circumcision and Passover. The New Testament sacraments are baptism and communion of the Lord's Supper. They're different in form, different in administration, but they're uh, one in essence. They're pointing to the same thing, right? So how does our understanding of the covenant affect our view of the sacraments? No, that's great. Um, part of the, the purpose of baptism, right, there's a purpose on an individual level when an individual person or child is baptized. It signifies something to them, but it, it should signify something to everyone else uh, who has been baptized. It's a visible sign that this person is now in the covenant, but it should also remind us that we are also, if we've been baptized, we are also in the covenant, and it should strengthen our uh, belief in God and his covenant and our faith in that. Um, also, uh, as we talked about with, uh, in men's Bible study with a, a book on covenantal baptism, because baptism is a new covenant or, or New Testament version of circumcision, there's, there's unity. Circumcision was for believers like Abraham, because he was, a, he was a grown man, right? And their children. Baptism is for believers and their children as well. And as far as the Lord's Supper, how, how, does the Lord's, how does our understanding of the covenant of grace interact with the Lord's Supper? What is the Lord's Supper a sign of? What does it signify to us? Yeah, yeah, so the, the bread signifies Christ's body broken for us. The cup signifies his blood shed for us. And we, when we partake, we, was it, what the words of institution, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do this in remembrance of me and proclaim his death until he comes, right? So we're proclaiming to each other and to ourselves that Christ died, Christ is the mediator of the covenant and will come again to fulfill the covenant um, in glory, right? It's already fulfilled, uh, but not fully fulfilled, if that makes sense. Um, so it's, it's a remembrance of what God has done for us as our covenant God, sending his son and sending his spirit to dwell within us. And it's a, a, an arrow pointing us forward to what Christ will do for us in glory. All right, if I have any questions or other uh, statements before we end? All right, let me pray. I'll just pray over it.
Father God, I thank you for this morning. Thank you again for this opportunity to come before you and uh, learn more about you as our God, as our Father, as the uh, surety of our relationship with you. Uh, we thank you for who you are, as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you for condescending to us to um, bring us into relationship with yourself. Thank you that you are a God of peace, not a God of confusion or chaos. And you have ordered and structured history in such a way that we can see you revealed uh, in your word, in your son, in your creation, and in our consciences. I pray, Father, that you would be with us now, that through your spirit you would prepare us for worship we, as we come together with our brothers and sisters. Um, send us your presence, send us your spirit, so that uh, our prayers and our praises might be effectual and pleasing to you. And uh, we pray that this time of worship would be glorifying to you, edifying to our brothers and sisters, and uh, that your kingdom would expand through this local expression of uh, your covenant people. And it's in Christ, our mediator's name, that we pray. Amen. <coughs>